Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're glad to have you back with us, and we are actually at the moment uh, uh, live streaming on our Facebook page. We've discovered that this is a feature that we can take advantage of with Zoom. So we normally meet on Thursdays to record the show via Zoom, and uh, we're going to, for the foreseeable future, uh, try this out. People will be able to actually ask questions online, and if we have presence of mind, we could actually look and see what the questions are and perhaps, (laughs) you know, respond to the questions in the course of the show. But anyway... uh, that's kind of new news for, for old listeners. If you're, fir- you're a first-time listener to the podcast, welcome. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, and I've written a few things in my life. And uh, I'm joined by my friends, as I am every week, and each of them uh, are in really cool locations while I am stuck at home. So, Glenn, tell us about yourself and where you are. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I am virtually in the Czech Republic, in the city of Kutnohora, in the Sedlec Ossuary. Uh, The monastery here was built in, I think, around the 12th century. Uh, When the Black Death went through, they accumulated a rather large collection of bones which were then stacked in the 16th century. And then in the early 19th century, uh, they hired somebody to come in and organize them. And so he decorated the church with the bones that had come out of the ossuary. So that's the Sedlec ossuary in the Czech Republic. It's a charming environment. Absolutely. (laughs) And for those of you who know me and know my uh, predilection for plague, You'll understand. (laughs) Now, uh, you're in a cool spot today, too, Tom. I'm the only guy (laughs) who doesn't get to You need to get out more, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, virtual virtual travel. (laughs) Right. So Um, tell us us about yourself, Tom, and where are you? I am near in Oxford, England. Um, This is the famous or infamous um, Radcliffe camera. It's a library, part of the Bodleian Library. I spent six years, roughly, every day in that place, this place. And so I figured to kind of have it behind me right now as, as kind of a reminder that I need to live up to all that study that I did at one, <laughs> one point in my life. <laughs> right. And tell us a little bit about yourself, just so people who maybe have never listened to us before know who you are. Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, well, Tom's day is today, and Tom's got a, a great subject for us. But before we get to it, I just wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. One is our Theology Podcast Indiegogo campaign has been launched, and we're about a week or two in, and, and we are uh, over 25% of the way to our goal. So we appreciate all the folks who have uh, con- you know, contributed to the campaign. And we've got another, I guess, 45, 43, something like that days to go. So you'll hear about it some more. But I felt like it was a good start. We've got a good start. We're trying to reach $4,000, and those funds will go to pay for a new uh, website and some new equipment for the show. And uh, so anyway, so that's, that's that. And then uh, we are a part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and we're really glad to be part of it. And one of the things that's exciting that's upcoming in their you know, schedule is a, is a conference. It's going to be in Nashville in October. And if uh, we are allowed to leave our homes by then, 
Uh, it's going to be uh, October 1st through the 3rd. Now I'm going to be there, and Glenn's going to be there. Glenn's actually one of the speakers for the conference. We'll have a booth for the for the podcast. Tom, do you think you'll be able to make it, or do you know yet? I'm going to try to. Um, it, it dates so far. I mean, I think a lot of things are going to be online for me in the fall, so right. uh, that may, may work perfect. Nice. Well, we'll be in Nashville, and of course, my son Caleb uh, and his wife Whitney live there, and so we'll be connecting with them, but hopefully we'll connect with you there. Anyway, with that out of the way, Tom, what are we talking about today? We are talking about the psychological captivity of the church. All right. I would like to claim originality for that title, but uh, it goes to L. Gregory Jones, a former uh, dean of Duke Divinity School. He's a Methodist theologian, um, but he was uh, he did series of works um, looking at the way sort of the psychological and the therapeutic started to infiltrate the church and the extreme impact it has had in 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 the church in basically re-characterizing what human purposes are and also redefining a lot of um, core christian teaching in light of a very different set of assumptions um, ones that are given from, you know, a more, uh, well, well, something that would, would not hold central, um, the Trinity, the incarnation and, uh, redemption and creation as Christians have classically understood them as scripture teaches them. So his concern was the doctrinally thin, um, employment of psychology and psychological categories has almost crept into such such a degree that we can barely tell the difference between therapeutic forgiveness, for example, or genuine Christian forgiveness. And he, he wrote a whole book called Embodying Forgiveness, in which he was trying to show the radical contrast between Christian notions of forgiveness and this sort of therapeutic. And disturbing in that book is the list of evangelical thinkers um, who not only we're trying to show the kind of significance of, of, of kind of different psychological theories and categories for pastoral care, but what they imported with the use of these um, categories and understandings was a whole vision of things that not only was a little at odds with Christianity, but fundamentally at odds with it. And there was even one point um, where one of the evangelical writers says, we, forgiveness is one of these kinds of things that God has built into things to where we, we can get to a point where we, we can even forgive God for creating <laughs> us in a world where we can be hurt. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, that's just so crazy. You know, what comes to my mind is Paul Vitz. You guys remember Paul Vitz? Yes. Uh, he uh, wrote a book entitled Psychology as Religion, the Cult of Self-Worship. Um, if you can see it, I have it here. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. So uh, I guess I've uh, tapped into one of the things you were already planning to talk about. That <laughs> go with it, though. Run. Well, I mean, the the whole idea of the triumph of the therapeutic. You know, this just everything's been been reinterpreted within the framework of sort of this emotivism, sort of mawkish sentimentalism. Um, it I think ties in really well to Schleiermacher and all of that. But then it's got the psychological mumbo jumbo cast, the pseudoscientific thing going, and uh, and I think that most uh, 
sort of mega church Christian quote uh, praise music is that it, it's it's all about kind of generating this emotional high. And um, yeah. anyway, that's my take. Yeah, what what came to my mind immediately was Schleiermacher. You know, the idea that religion gives you access to a different sort of truth than science, but it's it's a truth based on experience, emotion, that kind of thing, rather than reason. Um, and along with that, though, a essentially anti-supernatural, almost materialistic bias within the church that sees the point of life entirely in terms of this life, um, sees the psychological and so on as being the thing that is ultimately of uh, the greatest importance to a person's life, that they be happy, that they be fulfilled and all of that. Uh, the shadow of Freud is over all of this, yeah, uh, right. like that. And, um, you know, it seems to me that, that, you know, we keep coming back to metaphysics, it seems, uh, pretty regularly, but I would say that this is really coming out of a materialistic conception of the world and a way of basically, you know, trying to heal the sick by healing our emotions. Right, right. Yeah, I think... I think uh, a lot, a lot of the, I mean, both of you make a lot of points that, that kind of went into the, the research that, that I did kind of prepare for this. And um, one of the things I don't want to communicate is that there's no place for the insights gained from the kind of the valid sciences um, related to psychology, that, that which is, you know, and, and also the experience of dealing with people and, and the kind of the importance of that. Question is not either or. Um, it's not even both and, um, it's proper ordering. <laughs> and, and so it, you know, I, I, one theologian said, you know, psychology uh, makes, makes a great handmaiden, but a bad master, um, similar to what philosophy in relationship to, to theology. And so there are places at which some of the insights are something that help broaden our understanding of creation and how it functions and works, but it, it needs a much richer um, metaphysic in order to, to really be both life-giving and part of the process of, of any kind of healing. Now, Glenn makes a great point, the, the worldview metaphysical implications. Um, uh, Gregory Jones makes a similar point where he says that, you know, it isn't a value neutral or a virtue neutral um, set of ideas that are being brought into the church as they employ this material from psychology, psychotherapy. Um, you're importing the whole worldview with it and uncritically, and what is at the core is a fundamentally different understanding of the self, as Chris just mentioned, um, and then a fundamentally different understandings of the, the proper ends and purposes of human being and and living and so there's a very different understanding of what it means to be a human and why humans are here and what they're supposed to be doing and because of that they end up undercutting often the very help that they need to achieve because what they're doing they're affirming the very problem rather than actually uprooting it and 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 dealing with and so if we go back to classical, if we go back, you know, earlier in our episodes, we go back to an understanding of God and all things relative to God. And so we need divine instruction, not only to teach us who God is as God, distinct from anything else, but also who we are in relation to God. 
what our chief purposes are. Um, this orients the rest. This orders the rest. So we don't we don't end up getting the balance off. Um, and then what was the chief sin? Well, this is something I think that contemporary psychology and and even its its attempts to address issues related to it have no access to the issue of idolatry. Um, what what distorts the loves and the way of relating to things is fundamentally about the way we order our lives. When we're, when we're ordered to God in a non-utilitarian way, <laughs> um, as God as the pearl of great price, worthy of adoration and seeking and searching and knowing merely because of who God is, um, then the loves are properly ordered all the way down. We don't have a utilitarian relationship with everything else. Um, we're not having God basically become a function of our agenda, wishes, wants, and desires. Rather, our desires are purified and oriented towards why we're here to begin with. That's what happens with sound yeah. theology. Yeah, there are a couple things here that come to my mind uh, in terms of what I would guess are the objections that people would have to that, the idea of ordering your loves, particularly from an emotivist framework. Yeah. You know, if emotivism's legitimacy is its, it's I think I'm quotes here, legitimacy. <laughs> it's, it's its claim to authenticity, to its spontaneity. You know, I'm thinking about the Debbie Boone song, you know, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Now that dates me, but you guys remember that uh, 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Now, now, Debbie Boone was Pat Boone's daughter. I mean, she's singing this song that's, that, you know, uh, def I, I guess defies everything that she had been raised to believe. <laughs> well, didn't she also sing, You Light Up My Life? Yes, right. But if you follow, it's, it's pure therapy. You light up my life, you make me whole. It's, yeah. You know, again, I get the point. There is a genuine side to that, but I think the emphasis is, is on the lighting up my life and making me whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then and it loses the paradoxical quality of you know gaining your life by losing it. You know, seeking first the kingdom and then finding you know yourself in the process. In other words, it gets back to this ordering thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole Christian faith is about uh, the, you know, the ordering of things and you're, you're, you're kind of thrown in as a bonus. <laughs> yes, that's right. You know, um, I've got a, a friend from grad school who's been doing a lot of work on, um, well, he's from Finland, so he calls them the Puritans, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the Puritans, who in his doctoral work, he... You know, he's an agnostic, but in his doctoral work, he argued that the Puritans actually had an incredibly sophisticated understanding of psychology and an effective means of dealing with psychological issues. And he has since traced this back to medieval confessors' manuals and things like that. And he says there's an entire science, as it were, of, of sin, of psychology, and things like that, that has been completely lost. Uh, uh, to Christianity in the subsequent centuries. But one of the things that he says is that the Puritans argued that if you look at something like the seven deadly sins, okay, everybody has one of those that's going to be a dominant passion in their life. 
But if one of the sins are present, all of them are present. Hmm. Whichever one is the dominant, the ruling passion, the others arrange in order psychologically under that. And so, for example, let's say your uh, dominant sin is pride. Lust is going to be there too, but lust is going to manifest itself in a desire to get a trophy wife, someone that will show off, you know, just, you know, just how good you are, you know, to, to feed the pride. So there, there's a, a psychological ordering of sin in these traditional systems of understanding how sin works in, in our lives. And it's actually very sophisticated stuff. Well, it, yeah, yeah, it reminds me, in a sense, of what Tom is saying, coming at it from the opposite direction, that our lives have to be properly ordered according to proper loves, loving God first and then everything else, loving it under that. It's almost a mirror image of it um, into the realm of sin. Right, right. Do you think, well, I, I don't, I, I, I'm about to say something that'll take us in a different direction. Let's go back to Tom. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a shock. <laughs> Hopefully the rest of that. I, I know we'll do it at some point. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, Thomas Dixon had wrote a book that's very, very interesting. He, he uh, it was called From Passions to Emotions, The Creation of Secular Psych- Psychological Category. Yeah. And, and his work, even though um, from, from people I know who've kind of investigated it, well, um, I think it makes a great contribution in the sense that he really wants to retrieve a lot of what was lost from classical understandings of the human psychology and emotions and everything, passions, affections, faculty psychology. Um, he wants to retrieve that, and he acknowledges that by cutting out the theological roots of these things, we've cut off some of the greatest insights of psychology. And I think that would be there. And um, one of the things I think he doesn't address, and I think this is, this is how in the world did we get here in the church? And I think we, we were hinting at it, is we definitely, these things were around in some way. Um, what happens is when everything else gets flipped, so do they. I'll give, I'll give just an example for people. Let's think about Freud. What does Freud do to be kind of crass? He takes the enchanted world out there, and he brings it in here, right? It's not no longer demons coming at me. It's the demons in the history inside, right? The imminentizing of the spirit, the supernatural. Um, this goes with the, the kind of the loss of the transcendent or, or the making of everything in a completely, everything that is is within the container of the material or the natural. It's imminent within it. And so therefore the causal chain Um, is completely somehow within it. Um, And so psychology now is cut off from its spiritual moorings in relation to to God and all things relative to God, and now becomes something within, individual, personal, my story, you know, um, this whole emphasis. And, And so therefore the things that used to be there now are interpreted differently. So, um, for example, I think, uh, yeah, Paul Vitz puts it this way. He's talking about Tom Oden, who noticed that, that what you have going on in, in, in a lot of these psychological theories that were around maybe about 30, 40 years ago was basically just a retelling of the old kind of Puritan and, and some of the kind of Protestant spirituality, or, or well, in all Christian um, confession, thanksgiving, and commitment. But it gets interpreted what are the limits of my being that frustrate my self-actualization? 
what possibilities are open for deliverance from my predicament, right? The things that prevent me from being my true self. And how can I actualize these possibilities in order to become more fulfilled? So what we get is a very immanentized, wrapped around the human subject and their emotions, um, understanding of, um, of confession, thanksgiving, and commitment. So they're still there, but they've been redefined by a whole different metaphysic and a whole different understanding of the human and human ends. You know, one of the things I think, though, it's uh, important to remind ourselves of in the midst of all this, you know, sort of the psychologizing is that evil uh, it continues to exist in, 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 in all of this. It's just uh, manifesting itself differently. So one of the things that can end up happening with, you know, an analysis like this is we can become. Uh, I, I think so caught up in even the psychology of psychology <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that we lose, we lose touch with external manifestations of evil and even how this leads to a kind of evil. So let me throw a, a, a fun association here into the mix. Do you guys remember forbidden planet, the science fiction film with Leslie Nielsen yeah. in forbidden planet? It's, it's Freud. So uh, what you discover in the film is that there is this this terrible monster who is just wrecking habit and killing things and killing people, particularly men, uh, you know, uh, in this space uh, or on this planet. And it turns out that it's actually uh, what the way Leslie Nielsen puts it at the very end of the film, where I think maybe it's the the ship um, doctor. He says, "Monsters from the id." You no, know, <laughs> id. You know. So so what happens is that the there's this beautiful girl, of course, and her father is this mad scientist who's discovered this technology of this alien civilization. He doesn't really fully understand what's going on with it. But what it's done is it's tapped into his psychological state. And the monster is an energy monster that's been created by his own id. And it's killing all the men that his daughter has an interest in. <laughs> but 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 I, I guess why I bring that up is that, you know, we think, okay, this kind of gets us, you know, when we get into psychology and we get into the goofiness of Debbie Boone, uh, we, we kind of feel like at last we're liberated from the, from the realm of good and evil. This is all about, you know, feeling, feelings and psychological processes. But what I think you you have is just sort of a, a strange and, and new or not new, but sort of a, a different kind of expression of evil than we were, we, we were uh, accustomed to. Uh, and authenticity just can't be ever wrong That's you know, right. in, in, in minds of many people. There's, there's no place for the super ego <laughs> to get us back to Freud. <laughs> I think you know, for what it's worth, I know a lot of guys who would like to have one of those machines. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, aside from what, what, what's interesting to me is, you know, you, you get this stuff really coming out of Freud. You're getting it coming from um, you know, some other directions as well, you know, in, in the culture. But what I find most surprising on some level is how thoroughly it has been absorbed by the evangelical church. And this is the evangelical church that sort of prides itself on faith in God and, you know, belief in, in 
you know, a, a, a world beyond our own and all of this kind of thing. And yet, in practice, what you see is a is religion reduced to psychology. Yeah. What is it about evangelicalism that makes it vulnerable in this way? Any thoughts? Um, well, interesting. If we go back a little ways to to a, a, you know. It, just a little ways for us up here in Connecticut. Uh, to jo- Jonathan Edwards, Connecticut, right? <laughs> right, right? Right up the road from us, yep. Yeah, Jonathan Edwards wrote a very profound um, theological essay um, on religious affections. And uh, it's worth reading for anyone out there. It's, a, it's not an easy read. Nothing um, by Edwards is easy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the things he gets that this in this this can kind of cause a lot of uh, a lot of angst if you will use that word uh, purposefully um, amongst the evangelicals is he he was sort of weighing you know true and false religious affections and he was he was basically saying you could almost get to the whole package of evangelicalism but if you lose the chief end for all of that religion and spirituality then you have nothing else but the most the ultimate distortion and idolatrous alternative. Um, other people similar, Karl Barth at different times said something similar. He used just religion in general is basically that, that, uh, that even the Christian religion is the most distorted attempt to, to get a hold of God on its own terms. I mean, this was the kind of language. But Edwards made a distinction. He called it self-love evangelicalism versus God-love evangelicalism. Just to kind of keep it simple. It's, it's what we've been talking about over and over again. Edwards understood as classic Christianity that the Christian understanding in relation to God is non-utilitarian. It's similar to beauty in the classical modes. Beauty is to be adored for its own sake. What other, other benefits come from that, whether they're practical or not, isn't the issue. It's the beauty that is the issue. Beauty is beautiful itself, worth the pursuit. Now, interesting, like Roger Scruton, Sir, the late Sir Roger Scruton used to say, anyone who, like architect, who has aimed at beauty has made lasting monuments to beauty. Those that aimed, used beauty merely to, to try to address a particular need for the moment have created the most hideous and ugly buildings apply that to evangelical religion, right? Um, Beautiful when it is oriented the right way. That is pursuing the God whom it has been invited to commune with and to enter beyond merely what God does for me to actually being able to enjoy leisurely, right? Worship God himself. God is the reward. Um, And though when you get God, you get everything, as we've said. But when we have some other thing we're looking for, he argues, it becomes a religion of self-love. Even me being saved from damnation becomes, I have been, I'm, I'm pursuing God because I'm going to not have to suffer this way. It's, for the, it's that self-religion. Again, there is a valid joy in being liberated from damnation. Don't get me wrong. But it's not the pearl of great Christ. And when we make it the pearl of great price, we set the conditions up for this kind of substitute evangelicalism. False. You could use the old terms, true and false evangelical Christianity. You know, that would be a great 
uh, thing to elaborate on a little more how you go about communicating that to people because you know how, how can we get across the idea that there is such a thing as a false evangelicalism yes. it, now what this brought to mind particularly the convert you know your comments about beauty brought to mind uh, the uh, the book uh, the theology of Jonathan Edwards by Clymond uh, uh, and, and McDermott have you come across that one I, it, it, there's something out they put out recently. I, I, I think it's like about five years ago, maybe at the most. But yeah. their argument, neither of these guys are, are I, I don't think either of them are Protestant. I think both Catholics. But uh, they, they write this really, I think, uh, marvelous book about the theology of Jonathan Edwards. And they, and they said that very thing. They said the heart of Edwards' theology is beauty. It's not what everybody thinks it is. Yeah. Beauty is the is the is the center piece, and if you understand that Edwards is all about the beatific vision, you could say yes. Then everything falls into place. But if you don't understand that, then you don't even understand sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> you don't and, really and get for, it. And for Edwards, um, just like being and the good are so connected, yes. right? Um, love and holiness are connected, and the, so therefore that's why he says when when we love God for God's own sake, not that God gets something out of it, but because God is the most worthy object of, of, he calls it moral beauty. That means, therefore, the kind of holiness that evangelical strives for, the purification of our loves and the reordering of them, loving God first and everything related therein, that takes on, therefore, true, that becomes true religion, and it becomes beautiful in everything that it touches. Um, so the moral and the beautiful have a very strong connection in Edwards. And I think this is one of the things I think like David Wells' work has tried to show is that, okay, the, the, the therapeutic emphasizes God's love. I mean, to the point, it, it's, we're not dealing with the God who truly is love. Um, but it's severed from, from the moral aspect of that, the whole, holy love. And because of that, you have all of the compassion without any talk of actually addressing the fundamental issues of idolatry, sin, guilt, in ways that are moral and religious versus therapeutic and psychological. And yeah, you know, is, one of the things too uh, that's interesting to reflect on, is, you know, you were talking about, now is Vitz, was Vitz a Methodist? I don't, let's, let's see. Um, doesn't really say. I, I I I heard him. I've heard his name come up in those circles, but I, I don't. Yeah, but uh, the reason I I'm asking is you'd mentioned Tom Odin as well, and yeah. you know, it's it's I think you know sometimes a, a particular theological tradition can become as uh, attuned to its own theological tendencies to error as it is an advocate for so methodism as heart religion yeah. really is kind of the thing we're kind of getting at here when it goes awry when <laughs> when something goes wrong this yeah. and you could you could say that um you know all of the sort of the second blessing holiness movement kind of stuff that came out of uh, the 19th century is predisposed to this kind of thing yeah. this sort of weepy eyed experiential testimony driven faith another thing that uh, I would want to throw in whenever I teach church history 
we take kind of an idiosyncratic approach. I always teach church history in conjunction with the history of the culture surrounding it. Because the church exists within society, and what happens in society inevitably affects the church. So what we have to think about, I think, in this case, when we're looking at the roots of this, is the way in which evangelicalism has embraced the, a, a lot of things in the larger society, in the larger culture, um, unthinkingly, uncritically, and probably completely unaware that they were doing it. But, you know, just like fish don't know they're wet, um, you know, we don't really always recognize that we are involved in the culture at large. And when you've got a culture that is going therapeutic, uh, think about the self-help sections in bookstores, for example. It may be inevitable that, that the church is going to be pushed in that direction. But evangelicalism's tendency to always grab onto the newest, the latest, the greatest, the most effective, and all of that is going to make it especially susceptible to this kind of thing. At least back in the old days, it did all of those things in the name of the old-time religion. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, should, I should note just sort of as an aside, in the Middle Ages, uh, self-help had a totally different meaning than it does now. What it means is taking the law into your own hands and getting revenge. <laughs> that, that would certainly help you in certain respects, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So every time I see a self-help section in the bookstore, I expect to find things like the anarchist's cookbook or something. <laughs> <laughs> It's, so we've taken us down a rabbit trail here, Tom. Bring us back. Well, I, I will try to. I will get back a little bit to the medieval, and and again because I think one of the the, the significant retrieving things from the medieval, let's put it that way, uh, is very significant because I do think that that although things have to be thought through with the gains that we have theologically in some areas, they they have to be balanced with the wisdom of I think the classic church, especially in the arena of a much more complicated and sophisticated psychology in relationship to the, the true purposes of being a human and, and humans made in the image of God and, and, and the like. Um, and, and one of the things I think I'll end with is, is sort of what Aquinas had said on the issue of sorrow and how differently he conceived of it and how he evaluated within a thick theological frame, but also drew pastoral and moral wisdom from it unlike anything you can find anywhere. And you talk about caring for a soul with that rich understanding. Um, nothing, nothing around today can even uh, compare to it. Um, but anyway, that, the, that recent article, First Things, uh, by uh, David Paul, I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. He wrote it, I think it was kind of, kind of under the rainbow banner. And he was kind of, he's kind of looking at the way oh, right. culture so quickly um, even moved morally in, 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 in relationship to, you know, issues of sexual orientation and marriage and things like that. But one of the things he catches on in the essay is the, the whole notion that the therapeutic culture um, is what readied for this kind of transformation. And then we sort of ask the question in, in now in relationship to the evangelical church is why is it uncritically starting to run down the same trail. It has no resistance to, or very little resistance to, um, these forces and trends, and it seems to embrace them, and now it seems to redefine the whole Christian vision in light of them. And one of the things he hits on here um, is it ties together things we've talked about before, but, but what both of you brought up. Um, one would be, he says, Freud himself has largely fallen out of favor, yet 
Freud's therapeutic mission continues unabated, even heightened in the coronavirus era. And he talks about all the emphasis on self-care. But he goes, therapeutic discourse organizes our lives around emotional experience in a narrative of emotional suffering and healing. And so this, it's, it, it takes the suffering and, and healing required um, for the human being to be made whole, it takes it and reinterprets it um, when you compare it to, to what Christianity held. It does the same with um, liberation and deliverance. So this new therapeutic narrative um, has basically redefined classic terms, self, wholeness, healing, salvation, um, and has redefined them at, right around this pivoting self around their emotional lives in this narrative of suffering and, and, uh, and being delivered from the suffering. Then it is coupled with something we talked about before, a notion of the self that is only made whole when it is able to, A, fully self-express itself based on its own center of wishes and wants. And secondly, when that is likewise not merely tolerated, but acknowledged, affirmed, and and uh, embraced by the culture at hand. So in order to be a true self, in order to be an authentic self, you must be, you, you will have suffering until you have been liberated from all of those external oppressions and oppressors that... I'm afraid we kind of lost your voice there, Tom. We got, lost your voice there for the last few seconds. But I think uh, I can pick up on it, uh, the idea that you were expressing, this idea that it, because of the reinterpretation of the faith in these terms, uh, it's no longer sin which oppresses us. It's the opinions of other people that uh, do not validate whatever we're having to f you know, think about ourselves or feel about ourselves at the moment. Um, identity stuff a lot of the time, right? Yeah, you're back now. Okay. And so in the church, the narrative, I mean, the, 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 the culture of the church that is, is immersed in this understanding, they could not see any point to preaching a sermon or, or speaking about the way in which, you know, the law of God <laughs> Um, reveals the, the, the moral character of what is fitting to live in relation to God. And so it redefines the moral and religious um, as therapeutic and therefore means if in any way religion, if it's going to have any kind of significance for me, has to be therapeutic, relational, and has to be that in which God is basically an instrument in me being liberated to be my authentic self defined by me and then affirmed by everyone as it should be. So theology becomes a function, it becomes uh, an instrument of this whole psychological process of- Okay, and let, let's add Freud into this. Uh, because although Freud is, his theories aren't in right now, there's a core idea of his that is, and that's that the, nature of human problems, the thing that causes psychological problems is effectively feelings of guilt. Yeah. Now the key word there is feelings, mm -hmm. because to Freud, 
there is no objective moral guilt. So the thing you want to avoid at all costs is triggering guilt in people as we're looking at the consequences of Freud. So therefore, you can't very well talk about the law of God. You can't really talk about sin. Um, you can't really say, you know what? If you act on your desires in this area, you will be violating absolute formal moral law that is embedded in the structure of the universe because it's part of the character of God himself. You can't say that to people. That's right. well, because guilt is bad, and we need to do everything we can to avoid making people feel guilty. Well, there's a couple of thoughts just to add on to your, your, your observation there, Glenn, and I agree with your observation. But the thoughts that I'm sort of pondering or sort of what comes to mind at the moment is the artfulness with which, in which, even in a tradition like the Reformed tradition, this can work its sort of insinuate its way into things. So, um, you know, the people who seem to be uh, steering the ship in terms of where, where things, I think, are trending within, you know, I guess you would call it mainstream, reformed, you know, conservative thinking. <laughs> they all have this kind of uh, way of massaging the truth uh, to the point where it's, it's almost indistinguishable from out and out, uh, you know, sort of a mawkish, emotivist stuff that we're talking about right here. Now, I listen to some of these people, and yeah, they'll talk about the love of, I mean, not the love of God, but the, the, the law of God, but they'll do it in such a way that all of the edge is gone, and it, it almost sounds like I'm listening to Debbie Boone again, if you know what I mean. You know, it's, it's yeah. just that bad. And, and some of these people, you know, uh, will present themselves as, you know, sort of the voice of the LGBT community to the church or something. Right. We're all supposed to be uh, ashamed of of ever making anyone who was living a perverse sexual lifestyle. They'll never use the word perverse, by the way. But, the, but anyone, we'd be, we, should be, we should be ashamed. We should be confessing our sins for talking directly about right and wrong. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you, you wanted to focus on the law of God, but what you're really getting to there at the end there is the idea of the love of God. You know, it is not loving to tell people that your desires are disordered. Right. You know, and, and, and now, terminology there. But, but as I think about my own life, and this is, this is a testimony about how not feeling being, this is a testimony about how, how being made to feel, you know, bad because of my behavior was good for me. <laughs> you know, where, where have those testimonies gone? You know, some, the, some of the old timers just never prettied up their statements, you know, people that I knew when I was younger, they're almost all gone now, but you know, they would just say it, you know, that's wrong, you know, yeah. with, without qualification, without equivocation, just directly and frankly. And there's something arresting about that, that just, it has, a, it's like this, remember the old, uh, you know, aqua velva uh, commercials with a slap in the face, you know, it's that's like, <laughs> Thanks, I needed that. You know, you, you, it does that to you. And having to wear aqua velva all day. <laughs> <laughs> As you see, Glenn and I, we've not worn aqua velva in a long, long time. No. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. You know, all of this, the, the reason why this stuff is important, I mean, aside from, you know, I mean, even if you eliminate the purely theological from this, you know, the fact that sin offends God, even if you eliminate that, you know, we, we've talked before about the idea of teleology, that things are created for a purpose. And if they are used in violation of the purpose for which they are created, they're being misused. Uh, you know, we've talked about that. We talked about a variety of things related to this, but fundamentally what it comes down to is that if God created the universe, and if in fact the universe reflects the character of the God who created it, then there is a moral order in the universe. There is a, you know, things have meaning, things have purpose. And when you violate the purpose for which something is created, when you violate the moral order of the universe, you know, you can forget the entire theological side of this. What you're doing is objective harm, at the very least, to yourself and probably to other people as well. So the question is, in what sense is it loving to approve of behavior that is causing objective harm? And that's the thing that, that nobody, the vast majority of people that I know, do not seem to get. You know, that, that this isn't, but being judgmental or something like that. The fact of the matter is if you genuinely care for another person, you want what's best for them. You don't just tell them to go jump off the cliff. And, and I, I understand that Glenn, I'm with you, but sometimes um, it doesn't really matter whether or not what they said is motivated by, it, it, by pure, you know, uh, sentence, you know, pure, pure love. Sometimes it's just right. <laughs> no, yeah. Even if they want to hurt your feelings with it, you know. So, like when I like when I think about, you know, uh, you know, Proverbs, and we see Lady Wisdom uh, in chapter one saying, you know, because you would not, you know, do what I say, I'm going to laugh when I'm not going to feel bad for you when you get what you have coming to you. I'm going to laugh at you. I'm going to scoff because you scoffed. You know that. Um, I don't think has any. I don't think. Uh, we know what to do with something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, my point is that even if you take the, the liberal side on its own terms, you need to act loving to people, what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? Right. And, I mean, some of the most important things people have ever said to me occurred in the context of when I was getting slapped down. Right. <laughs> because those are the times when I grew the most. That's right. You know, and believe me, they were not said in a loving way. I wasn't feeling the love at the time. <laughs> but I needed to hear it. You know, what you're saying is absolutely true. But even on the terms of the people who talk about the love of God and the love of Christ and things like that, that doesn't mean that being non-judgmental. Jesus was incredibly judgmental. That's right. right. Yeah. And, 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 I mean, that's, you know, a lot of these things are the very things that have taken a back seat to, to, to mimic or um, to, to capture the trend of societal acceptance of everything and affirmation of everything. The church has um, wanted to basically consider any form of moral evaluation, judgment, and uh, assertion of the moral good for people, the limits that God gives for, for, for true flourishing. Um, they, they want to define it as merely legalism, right? Um, and, and 
So, and then the other side is, is how dare we hurt the self-esteem and continue to wound the wounded. And when really, again, sin is a complicated thing. It's not, I, I understand, for example, somebody is, comes into the church broken um, and their emotions have been hurt from sins of others, you know, abuse and, and, and you know, whole histories of things. But that does not mean, therefore, the best way to help these people, even on the therapeutic level, is to rip it out of them being made in the image of God and their purposes are for that, the, for, for pursuing God first and all things relative to God. So because of that, it's not wise for the church, therefore, to move in a way to heal or work towards helping people by merely affirming a self centered around its emotional self-centeredness, um, which the culture is doing. Um, they're, they're, we have to draw on the, the riches of the Christian faith to show them that, you know, morbid scrupulosity and an obsession with the self, even their emotions and their own healing, is not the way forward with healing. <laughs> yeah, in fact, it's a, it's a kind of trap. Um, there have been people in my, of my close acquaintance who over the years have become so obsessed with their health that it's been unhealthy, if you know what I mean. You know, yeah. They can never talk about anything but the latest prescription they got yeah. or their opinion about the doctor and why he or she is good or bad. It's just, it's, it's, their, yeah. it's this kind of the center of their life is their sickness. Yeah. Now, I understand if you're, if you're fighting for your life and you're trying to, uh, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm, I'm talking about people who just really are more, you know, like Glenn said, morbidly oriented toward um, something that's unhealthy, even in the name of health. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like if they were ever cured, they'd have nothing to talk about anymore. It's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it, it, it seems related, at least in my mind. Dallas Willard, I think it is, talks about what he calls the gospel of sin management. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea being that, you know, if you look at liberals, their version of sin management is social justice. Uh, if you look at conservatives, their version of sin management has to do with, uh, you know, personal morality or something like that. That's not the gospel, though, is his point. It's not about managing sin. So while on the one hand, you know, there, there's, there's a place for calling people to repent and things like that. We have to remember that's not really where the core of the gospel is located. You know, the core of the gospel is, yeah, you've got to recognize your sin. You've got to confess your sin. Um, and through confession and repentance, you obtain forgiveness. This is, you know, this is what Jesus died to accomplish for us. So you, there, there's, we need to have this, this balance between recognizing that there are genuine problems, which the therapeutic gospel all too frequently ignores by basically saying you're okay the way you are. You know, God loves you as you are. He, you, know, God, you, you don't have to change. That's utterly wrong. You have to recognize that there's a problem there, and you have to change. But the good news in this is that you can change and that Christ can make you more than what you are. Now, if you want, now that is in a sense almost a therapeutic way of saying it, but at least it begins with the notion that you've got a problem. 
actually we've got problems. And, and, and I think you have know, to and, deal and, with those. And but, as we unpack what the problem is, we realize right. that at its core is the religious and moral relation to God, because right. because we are made in the image of God, and therefore what we are and what we are to be about, why we're here and what we're here for and made to do is to image forth our maker. And that means that we are, the image of something is not what you, you place your contemplation on. Right. It's yeah. not what you put your focus on, even if it's it, what you do. It, it, in, and so confession of sin is the process by which we turn from idolatry and embrace through God. That's that's right. what's going on there. That's why repentance is at the heart of healing. And so in the therapeutic culture, which has a different notion of the self as affirming itself as the center, um, it has a different God there. You know, the God of William James, the little God that that, that is called ourselves, right? <laughs> you shall be as gods. And yeah. so... Well, yeah, the, the, the problem fundamentally with the therapeutic gospel is that it ultimately tells Jesus he's wrong. Because <laughs> yeah. the therapeutic gospel is all about finding yourself. Yeah. Jesus says whoever finds himself must lose it. Whoever loses himself for my sake will find it. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that you need to find yourself is, you know, Jesus says that's the way to lose your life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, and, and so... By, by putting the focus at that point, you're completely missing everything that the genuine gospel talks about. And, and I think that was, that's the point of uh, Gregory Jones, Jonathan Edwards, is that even cloaked within stuff that sounds similar, because, you know, the significance of the human and the care for the soul are healing, salvation, right? Um, within that is a very preferred, perverted mockery of the true the genuine article. And okay. so it can look and sound very similar. It's, it's now starting not to, but for a long time, it looked and sound, sounded very similar, but what was going on underneath was either a self-love religion versus one that uh, finds the pearl of great price and gives up all for that, and therefore finds not merely life, but eternal life. It's interesting that when Jesus said, whoever would save his life must lose it, never loses his life for my sake, will find it. The word that, that's used for life there is actually the word for soul, psyche, same word as psychology. Right, right. So, you know, again, it's just pointing, in a lot of ways, that's almost tailor-made to undermine, it seems to me, this entire notion that, that we've been talking about, uh, uh, the psychological captivity of the church. Kind of, I'd like to take this in a, a slightly different direction, but it builds on this. And that's uh, what kind of communities, what kind of churches, that's a better way to put it, what, 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 what happens to the church as a community when this sort of thing happens? When it's sort of like the story about my healing or the story about my, uh, my you know, tr the troubles that I've experienced at, at because other people have tormented me by telling me that this or that isn't what should be the case for me. Which, what, I, what I think you end up happening is you end up with a kind of victimization culture, uh, not in the sense that you know, this uh, ignores the truth that there are genuine victims in the world, but, but, but that what ends up happening is, is status, moral status is achieved by 
well, what we've talked about before with uh, intersectionality, the more, the more you can sort of lay claim to being oppressed or being psychologically harmed by what other people have done for you, to you or whatever, the more your uh, moral authority rises. So if I'm a, you know, uh, a person who uh, doesn't necessarily have any justification to have these kinds of, pro, you know, sort of struggles. If I'm if I'm actually coming from a fairly healthy background and good home and was educated and maybe actually participated in a sport in school, <laughs> then you end up with these these things where these people almost feel like they have to find something that you know to to. But- that, that's not a new problem. Uh, I, I, I remember people who were always sort of upset about the fact that they weren't on drugs or anything else when they were young because they didn't have a good testimony. That's right. Well, that was like an early manifestation of this. You know, yeah. the, you know you're, you're, the local chapter of Teen Challenge would come by and all the kids in church, instead of being impressed with how they've been delivered, they were impressed by how bad they had been. <laughs> <laughs> when these testimonies are not. <laughs> and then they'd say that, man, I wish I had lived a, re- a wretched life, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it, it's interesting, uh, Gregory Jones quotes uh, Christopher Lash's uh, point uh, on, on that similar. He talks about the way in which the therapeutic model culturally has given rise to the cult of the victim in which entitlements are based on the display of accumulated injuries inflicted on by an uncaring society. The politics of compassion, or, or a, this, this new gospel of compassion, um, degrades both the victims by reducing them to objects of pity, and there would be benefactors who, would, who find it easier to pity their fellow citizens than to hold them to impersonal standards, the attainment of which would make them respected. Compassion has become the human face of contempt. And, and, you, and you sort of see, and then what happens is like we have now is this contempt has turned to sheer hatred because they, what they've done is turn the one who they see makes them a victim by not, not changing the power structure that doesn't make them a victim. Therefore, you are an oppressor. You are to be hated. You should be the next victim. And so you create this cocktail of, of horrific, horrific uh, results um, just by this, this kind of um, perverse understanding of the victim and not holding the victim to the same standard you would hold the non-victim. Um, we, we see it sometimes in the criminal justice system or different things. Okay, you, we, we consider the socioeconomic or they, they had a rough family life, therefore it's okay that they killed their eight siblings or you know, they'll get a lighter sentence. You know, but what is accomplished by that? Is it that you know, it doesn't mean those things aren't significant and don't have certain places of conditioning things. But what happens is, is you you lose touch with that which is most fundamental of, of a human being made in the image of God, and that is their responsibility towards God and all others. And and they, Jesus didn't say, okay, I'm, I'm only dying for X, Y, and Z in the sense of this group of people. They were okay. They really didn't need atonement. <laughs> well, what what other what other thing kind of is going on here is I think that there's a, a uh, also a background in the world in which um, we uh, have the margins, so to speak, to tolerate this kind of stuff. You know, um, when things are really hand to mouth, 
when life is uh, you know, just survival is a, you know is a as a scramble where you have to just make sacrifices uh, and go without just to get through the day. You don't have a whole lot of tolerance for this stuff. It's it seems to me anyway that you've got to have fat margins in order for this kind of stuff to to exist. Let me give you an example. Have you noticed that we're not hearing much, if anything, about transgenderism for the last couple of months? It was like uh, the thing that led every conversation, every post, everything on Oprah. You know, it's just it was everywhere, and now you can't find anybody talking about it. Because we've got real problems, and not goofy stuff. You know, you want to wear a dress, clinger, you know, in mash. <laughs> that date, that date. So. <laughs> Think about it. Clinger, clinger pretended to be a woman so that he could be discharged for insanity. That's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do they ever show that up the, those episodes anymore <laughs> only, only very late at night on some odd channel i think <laughs> right yeah yeah that, that that's a point that you know you you can look at this again historically there are a lot of examples of this kind of thing so for example it's only prosperous societies that talk about the virtues of poverty <laughs> right. well, you, Right. You know, it, it, it's only things that, you know, it's only once you've got security in other ways that you can begin to look at, well, things like transgenderism or any number of other things. And, uh, you know, at the moment with things as up in the air as they are, right, right it disappears. All kinds of things have sort of vanished off the radar that, that were main themes of discussion four months ago. I, re I remember uh, one of the notorious Stanley Hauerwas quotes during my time there at Duke, and he, he was always notorious for a quote, but I remember someone asking about one of these kind of odd issues of the time. And he goes, for people who have to work for a living, because his dad was a bricklayer, he goes, we don't have time to think about stuff like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he still associated himself with, <laughs> with the bricklayer. Yeah, that's, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> Well, we've kind of gotten to a point where I think we should wrap things up. Um, is there anything you want to leave us with, Tom? Anything you want to, kind of like uh, something you've been aching to say? Aching to say. Well, the last thing is one of the forums I saw at, at, at a church I attended at one point. Um, I remember that I was teaching a class in, in theology. At the same time, another class was offered by a guy coming in who it was something to do with the way in which behind every kind of bad behavior is basically uh, emotional hurt. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And you can uh, imagine I've, I had I've, about five people in my class and the other had about 500. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everybody was sort of like, yeah, I can identify with that. I'm emotionally hurt. That's my, yeah, yeah. How about you, Glenn? Anything you want to reflect on as we, as we conclude? I think we, we th this has kind of gone uh, on a uh, pretty wide ranging thing, but I think you've identified a, a, real problem that exists within contemporary American Christianity. And uh, it's something that we really need to be uh, aware of and fighting against. Yeah. yeah. If anything, uh, people should go out and read that book by Paul Vitz, you know, uh, psychology is religion, you know, the cult of self, what was it? Cult of self. What, what, what was it? The self-worship? Yeah. The cult of self-worship. Yeah. 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 I think he wrote that in what the early eighties maybe, or mid eighties. But it says live today, maybe in the 90s. I don't know if yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So right after right. Russia. He did, yeah. He didn't deal with like the new trends, like systems, you know, psychology and that, but still a lot of the stuff carries over. Right. Right. Yeah. We'll have to make sure we put the references to this, to the books in the uh, description. Right. Right. Well, anyway, uh, I think that's it for me too. Uh, we appreciate you, uh, once again, listening to the Theology Pugcast, we don't take uh, you at all for granted. And uh, if you'd like to see our faces and our unique settings, you can, uh, you can catch this episode on our Facebook page, Theology Pugcast. And uh, you can also uh, tune into the YouTube channel that we just started. And it's just, it's growing, you know, it's got a few, few folks who watch the shows there, but, but uh, you can watch, watch them there as well. Anyway, uh, we do appreciate your support, and thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.